behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. And I am your host, Timothy Joseph, and... Today I'm going to read from an article about uh, religion as scheduled induced behavior. It's by Paul S. Strand at Washington State University. And then I'm going to cover uh, one of my favorite guys, which is uh, James Strang, the king of Beaver Island, which we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast before. But I think it relates to this article. And by the way, this is not meant to say uh, it's not against anyone's religion or belief. You you believe what you want to believe. You live your life as you think you should. And I know that uh, it's been some difficult times lately. Here we are in, uh, I'm on the last day of March in 2020. And a lot of people are looking for some comfort and some guidance, and I, uh, and I think that's okay. But uh, I, I do like to examine uh, religion uh, from a behavior analytic point of view. So this is from the Behavior Analyst, uh, Spring Edition, 2009, Religion as Schedule-Induced Behavior, Paul S. Strand, Washington State University. He writes, in this article, I argue that a class of religious behaviors exist that is induced for prepared organisms by specific stimuli that are experienced according to the response-independent schedule. Like other schedule-induced behaviors, the members of this class serve as minimal units out of which functional behavior may arise. In this way, There exist two classes of religious behavior, non-operant schedule-induced behaviors and operant behaviors. This dichotomy is consistent with the distinction insisted upon by religious scholars and philosophers between, quote, graceful, unquote, and, quote, effortful, unquote, religious behaviors. Embracing the distinction allows an explanation of many aspects of religious experience and behavior that have been overlooked or disregarded by other scientific approaches to religion. He goes on. Behavior analysis differs from evolutionary theory in that the former attempts to explain the behavior of organisms, whereas the latter attempts to explain the structural and behavioral characteristics of species. Overlap occurs when behavior is stable across generations for members of a species, prompting questions about the source of that stability. One might presume compatibility across these disciplines given that they both rely on selectionist principles to explain stasis and change. And you can kind of look up the different uh, references he has here. However, when it comes to explaining behavioral stability, deep disagreements sometimes arise. Differences of opinion usually concern whether complex behavior is best explained in terms of contingencies that operate over the course of ontology, the subject matter of behavior analysis. 
or in terms of natural selection over the course of phylogeny, the subject matter of evolutionary theory. Therefore, evolutionary theorists and behavior analysts are in agreement about the basic mechanism, selectionism. But they differ sometimes about whether some behavior is inherited or is in some other way a function of having been structurally encoded, i.e. selected, over the phylogenic course of the history of the species, or whether the behavior can be explained in terms of learning. The recent, this from 2009, publication of two books about religious behavior written by highly influential evolutionary theorists has the potential for awakening this debate. These books, one written by Daniel Dennett, 2006, and the other by Richard Dawkins, 2006 also, set out to explain the origins of religion from the standpoint of evolutionary theory. And those books, by the way, are uh, Richard Dawkins, 2006, The God Delusion, and uh, D.C. Dennett, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, 2006. So the arguments they marshal and the conclusions they draw are remarkably similar. Dawkins and Dennett agree that the concept of God and resulting religious behavior are stable across generations, although they are not coded in the genes, nor do they confer evolutionary advantages. Instead, they are byproducts of other functional characteristics of the species, and the fidelity of their transmission across generations is a testament to the power of social learning. Arguing that intergenerational stability of religious thought and behavior is a cultural phenomenon is a major conclusion for evolutionary theorists whose first-line consideration is that stability is a manifestation of evolutionary fitness. Having dispensed with the idea that religion is encoded in the genes and concluding that it confers no evolutionary advantage, Dawkins and Dennett embark on a discussion of its origin and mechanisms of transmission. This takes them to the level of individual and autogenetic processes responsible for religiosity. Rachlin, it's R-A-C-H-L-I-N, 2007, summarizes their position as follows. At most, the fundamental level, at the most fundamental level, the inherited trait most responsible for religious behavior is our tendency to attribute agency to complex moving objects. Then it labels the intentional stance. Then it labels this the intentional stance, and it serves as a basis for the origins of the concept of God. According to Dennett, we naturally presume that complex phenomena are the products of intentional behavior. For that reason, we attribute phenomena we do not understand to a sentient being. The legitimacy of the intentional stance as the explanatory construct is criticized by Reichland and Zeiler, 2007, on the grounds that this explanation is as mysterious and poorly understood as the construct it seeks to explain. Having attributed the ubiquity of a belief in God to the intentional stance and other mental constructs, Dawkins and Dennett proceed to explain the stability of beliefs about God and religious behavior. At this point, they invoke 
learning in the form of socially mediated reinforcement. That is, children are said to imitate their parents and other powerful role models and receive reinforcement for adhering to family and societal traditions concerning God and religious behavior. Reinforcement can take the form of verbal praise, social acceptance and prestige, and even money and access to health care. The importance of, socially, of social mediation is noted by Zeiler, quote, under some circumstances, acting religious can be beneficial, and others detrimental, depending, in brackets, on the beliefs of the potential supplier of benefits. God and Behavior Analysis General agreement exists, then, between evolutionary theorists and behavior analysts who have written on the topic that religious behavior is no different than other operant behavior. It occurs to the extent that it confers political, economic, and social advantages. The question then becomes, how is it maintained? Once again, the explanations of Dawkins and Dennett and behavior analysts converge on a common answer. Behavior that was established through reinforcement eventually becomes resistant to extinction. According to Schoenfeld, religious behavior, like other human behavior, comes to be maintained by increasingly intermittent reinforcement, thereby reducing its susceptibility to extinction. Similarly, religious behavior becomes sensitive to consequences to the extent that it becomes rule-governed. As a result, religious behavior may persist long after it garners no advantages for the practitioner. A primary problem with this conceptualization is is that it provides a compelling story but does not allow specific predictions. That is, if religious behavior changes, it can be said to reflect changes in the prevailing reinforcement contingencies. If it remains stable despite changing contingencies, its persistence can be attributed to insensitivity arising from its rule-governed status. The problem of gauging the relative strength of these countervailing forces is noted by Zeiler in 2007. The possibilities are sufficiently varied as to either support existing belief systems or to result in their abandonment. Page 440. And that is M.D. Zeiler 2007 on the realities of tooth fairies, a review of the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins in the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior, 2007. Okay, Strand goes on in this way. The model is consistent with a just-so story. It disarmingly explains anything post hoc, but it is helpful with respect to prediction and control. Although this problem, this is problematic for evolutionary theory, it is particularly so for behavior analysis. That is, it is a philosophical requirement of behavior analysis that explanatory constructs operate forwardly rather than backwardly by improving prediction or control. In addition to being of questionable scientific value, the socially mediated reinforcement hypothesis is a cynical view of religious behavior because it explains acting religious rather than being religious. That is because although religious behavior includes rituals, methods of interacting with others, hierarchies, and other social 
accoutrements. These are simply the outward expressions of something more foundational. According to philosophers and religious scholars, this foundation of faith is based on private personal experiences, not socially mediated ones. These personal experiences are the truest and most genuine expressions of faith, out of which less genuine acquired expressions arise. Therefore, not all religious behavior is equal. Acquired religious behavior is motivated and can be understood in the terms of social contingencies. Foundational religious behavior, on the other hand, falls outside the control of socially mediated reinforcement. This definition is a seeming conundrum for scientists. If some aspect of behavior religiously is illustrated to be sensitive to observable consequences, the critic would claim that a behavior in question is not a genuine or foundational expression. Some, some scientists agree, stating that true religious experience is not susceptible to scientific methods. The prolific paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould argued that mystical, the mystical falls outside the magisterium of a science. Other scientists have dismissed the distinction claiming that religious behavior is behavior and therefore must conform to its laws. Rejected is the notion of non-social personal experiential foundation of faith. This is a rejection of the dualism that is the basis of much religious thought. This position is primarily pragmatic. It stems from the intractability of operationalizing the distinction insisted upon by religious scholars. The solution to this problem has been to disregard the proposed distinction. Nevertheless, even scientists who apply selectionist principles to religious behavior hint at the specialness of the foundation of faith. Dawkins is forceful on the topic, noting that it is those behaviors that involve faith that disregard reason that are really pernicious. One gets the sense Dawkins could tolerate all the rest of religious behavior. However, faith, believing the incredible, is what religious scholars identify as a foundational expression and it is what believers seek for themselves and their children. Therefore, despite the difficulty of distinguishing between different classes of religious behavior, the distinction cannot be ignored. A complete scientific account of religious behavior must make sense of the dichotomy. Okay, a new start for behavior analysis of religion. Most attempts to explain religious behavior focus on why it is so stable. At first glance, stability in the context of shifting reinforcement contingencies may seem contrary to the socially mediated reinforcement hypothesis, but it is not. That is because according to this view, malleability occurs primarily in childhood, after which beliefs become fixed as a contingency-based behavior gives way to rule-governed behavior. For that reason, people rarely switch their religious beliefs or affiliations in response to immediate and tangible rewards. Think of the suffering of many people would have avoided had they done so. This view maintains the innocence and malleability of childhood and is accurately character, uh, caricatured as follows. Quote, environment molds man, brainwashes him from infancy, and instills religious habits of such strength that they can persevere in the face of powerful 
counteractive pressures. Schoenfeld, 1993, page 7. From this perspective, religious behavior is remarkably stable. Among the zealous, life is eagerly sacrificed for afterlife. Not only are religious habits unswayed by worldly advantages, they may grow stronger in the face of prosecution and deprivation. Believers remain faithful for better or worse, through thick and thin, for richer or poorer, and oftentimes report increased fidelity arising from trials and tribulations. It is this steadfastness that captures our attention and demands explanation. This portrait, however, is incomplete. Although rarely considered in the scientific literature on religion, devotion sometimes gives way to doubt and vice versa. Even spiritual leaders are uh, even spiritual leaders experience profound changes in their conviction, devotion, and practice over time. According to Dennett, this variability has been overlooked. Quote, creed revision is a process that is upsetting to watch too closely, so it is no wonder the fog of mystery descends so gracefully over it. Clearing this fog involves focusing on change rather than stability and may have important ramifications for the scientific analysis of religion. That is, Strand right, because the socially mediated reinforcement hypothesis is clearest with respect to predicting change. It states if change occurs, it is in response to shifting reinforcement contingencies. No other mechanism of change is proposed. Contrary to the prediction, however, there appear to be few, if any, accounts of important shifts in religiosity that are readily traced back to changes in the available tangible reinforcers. An exception is forced conversion, such as those of the Holy Inquisition. Religious scholars would agree, however, that a coerced conversion differs from one that is uncoerced and that former falls outside the sphere of genuine religious experience. Once again, the legitimacy of religious behavior is called into question to the extent that it can be identified as having tangible worldly benefits. But if shifts in religious thinking, beliefs, and behavior are not contingent on socially mediated reinforcement, what, if anything, predicts them? If religious behavior varies over the lifespan, it behooves behavior analysts to be able to predict it. Variability of Religious Behavior there is little evidence that profound changes in religious behavior and be behaviors occur in response to changing reinforcement contingencies. Nevertheless, they do occur. It is necessary to search for predictors of change. It may be the case that changes in religiosity are preceded by monumental life events, which are defined here as events which bring people into contact with mortality and loss. But they are bigger than that, too and include events that prompt verbal behavior involving life's big questions. The religious scholar Haught, H-A-U-G-H-T, 2004, describes the big questions this way. And he says, The ones that never go away. We may momentarily distract ourselves from them, but they loiter on beneath the surface of our lives. In some of us, they remain dormant for years. But some extreme circumstances, such as bitter personal defeat and needless suffering, the prospect of our own death or the death of another, may force us to face them head-on, at least occasionally. So Strand goes on, Therefore, monumental events are defined here. 
not in terms of what an outsider would conclude about them, but rather by their effects on the behavior of the person who experiences them. To qualify as monumental, an event must prompt behavior that is concerned with death. Hmm. Examples of such behavior include uh, efforts to alter the probability of death, in other words, managing risk, attempting suicide, preparing for death, like writing a will, and responding to the possibility of an afterlife. As will be discussed in a subsequent section of this paper, only the latter of these three behaviors, responding to the possibility of an afterlife, qualifies as religious behavior. Therefore, monumental life events do not necessitate religious behavior. Nevertheless, given an observable shift toward religious behavior, the present paper hypothesizes that a monumental life event will have triggered it. Empirical support for this hypothesis can be found in the medical literature. Among patients who tested positive for HIV-AIDS, 45% reported a subsequent increase in religiousness or spirituality. By comparison, 13% reported a decrease and 42% reported no change. In in another study, 75% of HIV-AIDS patients said that as a result of their illness, their faith had been strengthened at least a little. These data are consistent with the hypothesis stated above. Having experienced an event that signals an increased probability of death in the form of HIV-AIDS diagnosis, a sizable percentage of people reported an increase in religious behavior. The idea that religious faith is triggered by a monumental life events is repeat throughout scripture and religious biographies. St. Paul writes that his ministry was motivated by escape from death in a storm. Jonah was moved to prophecy by a series of monumental events culminating in being swallowed whole and regurgitated by a whale. Merton reports that reminiscences of horrors of World War I prompted by the inevitability of what became World War II provided the proximal impetus for his own religious conversion and eventual uh, monastic convocation. Others attribute being saved, reborn, or otherwise brought back to spirituality to a host of monumental events, including addiction, social rejection, and dangerous compulsions. These events have in common the possibility of death or loss. Not unless they are recognized as life-altering do they prompt religious behavior. All these, although these events are not subsequently sought after, disqualifying them as reinforcers, people are often thankful for them in hindsight. They are identified as turning points toward hopefulness and purposefulness and away from despair and aimlessness. In this way, monumental life events sometimes prompt an enduring reorganization of behavior. Religious Behavior as a Response Class Religious behavior may be a class of responses induced by exposure to monumental life events. The activities subsumed under this class include both verbal and nonverbal behavior, such as questioning the meaning of existence, contemplating our origins and ultimate fate, and organizing behavior to secure a desirable afterlife. According to both Schoenfeld and Hayes, 
The organizing principle for this class of behavior is responding in accordance with self ex- with the self extended beyond a material existence. Hayes labels the class as self as infinite, noting that it emerges as a function of verbal training in perspective taking. It is our ability to engage in verbal behavior about a non-material existence that is the basis for religious behavior. It is important to note that the deictic response class self as infinite cannot be defined in terms of topography. Membership is unconstrained by form. It is a verbal frame involving if-then relations. The frame may subsume various individual acts, similar to how grammatical frames subsume various words. For example, if I am good, then I get a cookie. Readily extends to if I worship, then I go to heaven. Religious behavior, then, is the application of verbal frames to a temporal sequence that extends beyond the speaker's material existence. The ubiquity of religious behavior is illustrated by the fact that even declaring oneself an atheist is likely a religious act. I very much agree with that. This is true to the extent that professed atheism is a response to the possibility of an afterlife. Schoenfeld 1993 notes that religious and irreligious behaviors represent competing response alternatives, whereas religious behavior is characterized by organizing one's activities with regard to self as infinite, irreligious behavior involving organizing behavior in response to self as finite. The latter involves all activities that are unaffected by putative non-material existence. The interpretation of religious and irreligious behavior parallels laboratory-based research on concurrent schedules that pits delayed and probabilistic reinforcers against immediate and definite reinforcers. To the extent that a current that a concurrent schedule's interpretation is valid, a goal of a behavioral analysis of religion should be to describe how organisms distribute activities across these competing response alternatives. Such a dis- description would contribute to an explanation of the variability of religious behavior. Schedule-based variability. Dennett, 2006, identifies one other behavior analytic formulation as a possible explanation for religious behavior, namely B.F. Skinner's 1948 superstition theory. The theory is based on observations of the behavior of pigeons exposed to response-independent reinforcement schedule. Observing the behavior, Skinner reported the following. In six Out of eight cases, the resulting responses were so clearly defined that two observers could agree perfectly on counting instances. One bird was conditioned to turn counterclockwise about the cage, making two or three turns between reinforcements. Another repeatedly thrust its head into one of the upper corners of the cage. 
A third developed a tossing response, as if placing its head beneath an invisible bar and lifting it repeatedly. Skinner suggested that the pigeons were responding as if their behavior controlled delivery of food, when in fact delivery was independent of behavior. That is, he attributed the cause of the, quote, superstitious, unquote, responding to the response-independent reinforcement schedule. Like Dennett, Ratchlin and Zeiler reject Skinner's theory as an explanation for religious behavior. The dismissal stems from subsequent experimental analysis illustrating that the behavior of pigeons exposed to response-independent reinforcement schedules is not, in actuality, superstitious. That is, in a replication of the superstition experiment, Stadden and Simmelhag, 1971, found that the odd behavior arising in the context of response-independent reinforcement was not a function of false association between behavior and the reinforcer. Rather, the odd behaviors of the pigeons were random or under the control of other reinforcers. This conclusion was supported by a subsequent work illustrating that animals do not readily mistake contiguity for contingency. Therefore, superstitious behavior is a less robust phenomenon than Skinner suggested, making it a less than adequate candidate for explaining religious behavior. Despite the fact that Skinner's explanation may have been faulty, the observation was not. Research by Staden and Simohag and others have confirmed that behavior of non-human animals and humans exposed to response-independent reinforcement schedules is sometimes odd in that it is consistent with obtaining the anticipated reinforcer. However, the pattern of behavior is more complex than Skinner noted. Staden and Simohag noted a dichotomous pattern of responding over the course of interval between reinforcement presentations, the inner reinforcement interval. Toward the beginning of the interval, behavior is remarkably variable and is not well matched to the upcoming food. For example, rather than pecking in anticipation of food, the animals engaged in head bobbing, wing flapping, and other seemingly stereotyped behaviors, the sorts of behavior that captured Skinner's attention. Toward the end of the interval, on the other hand, their behavior became more consistent with obtaining the food, in essence, pecking increased, and therefore less likely to be mistaken for superstitious behavior. This dichotomous response pattern persisted across experimental sessions, qualifying it as a steady-state behavior. The two sets of behaviors were labeled interim responses, and terminal responses, respectively. Experimentally induced behavior. In addition to the fact that they comprise one component of a complex dichotomous pattern of behavior that is induced rather than shaped, a second feature of terminal responses is important to the present discussion. One of the dichotomous patterning of responding is the established via adequate exposure to the schedule. The activities that comprise the terminal response typically persist despite being irrelevant to procuring reinforcement. That is true to the extent that they are topographically consistent with the natural response of that species of animal. For example, prior to obtaining food, 
contingent on dropping a coin into a slot, raccoons have been observed to clean the coins. This cleaning behavior is species typical in that it is consistent with how raccoons in the wild behave in the presence of food. It arises in the laboratory after some amount of exposure to a schedule in which food is the operant consequence. Interestingly, this behavior has been shown to arise and persist despite being irrelevant to or even contrary to procuring food. To the extent that it persists despite being counterfunctional, that behavior has been identified as falling into a class of behavior that includes instincts, emotions, and sign tracking. They have in parentheses auto-shaped behavior. Siegel, 1972, has described such behavior as induced and is occupying a middle ground between pure operant and reflexes. In addition to consumatory behavior, schedule-induced behavior has been observed in response to aggression, pain, and extinction. Induced behaviors have in common that they are not shaped into existence, but instead emerge in the context of exposure to response-independent reinforcement. According to Siegel, induced behavior includes topographies that are neither clearly reflexive nor clearly operant. That is, which appear to be under complex stimulus control and not so tightly bound to stimuli as classic reflexes are, and yet not obviously under the control of reinforcement contingencies. Therefore, there exists an experimentally derived model of reinforcement-resistant behavior that has no basis on ontogenetic functionality. That behavior may arise in the context of exposure to response-independent schedules of reinforcement. The behavior and its persistence and induced, in other words, emergent, in the sense that they are part of a complex response that was not specifically shaped into existence. Reinforcer insensitivity. According to the present formulation, the variability of religious behavior, how it ebbs and flows over time, is not a reflection of its differential effectiveness at procuring reinforcement. Instead of being shaped into existence and maintained by differential reinforcement, I, that being Paul Strand, am suggesting that religious behavior is schedule-induced. This conclusion is based on several pieces of evidence. First, the occurrence of monumental life events is largely independent of the behavior of an organism in a manner reminiscent of reinforcement schedules that induce complex and compulsive uh, response patterns. Second, religious behavior waxes in response to these events despite the fact that it is not reinforcing, nor does it signal obvious reinforcers. In this way, religious behavior resembles instinctual behavior. It is responsive to antecedents in the apparent absence of reinforcement. This explains why attempts to punish religious behavior may have the paradoxical effect of increasing it. Okay, Putative punishers induce religious behavior to the extent that they stimulate verbal behavior concerning immortality. For example, religious persecution often takes the form of the threat of death, which prompts behavior concerned with an afterlife. Such behavior is by definition religious. In this way, contingencies established to reduce religious behavior may in fact induce it. It is these two aspects of religious behavior 
that the present formulation attempts to explain, that much religious behavior is evoked by certain antecedent while at the same time is unresponsive to tangible reinforcement. To the extent that this is true, the present formulation is preferable to the socially mediated reinforcement hypothesis. That is because, according to that hypothesis, if the behavior is simply an operant made insensitive to contingencies by rule governance or a history of intermittent reinforcement, it should not remain sensitive to antecedents. The power of the antecedent derives from its association with the reinforcer. Nevertheless, what is re- that is what religious scholars and empirical studies suggest. A response class that is sensitive to antecedents and insensitive to consequences. Such a pattern of responsiveness is consistent with schedule-induced behavior. Acquired Religious Behavior As was previously noted, religious contrasts Religious scholars contrast foundational, genuine, or graceful religious expressions with what might be called effortful religious behaviors. These two classes are distinguished distinguished not in terms of their form or topography, but rather in terms of their controlling variables. Unlike foundational religious behavior, Effortful religious behavior is controlled by its consequences. It is effortful and intentional in the sense that it is directed toward and dependent on obtaining or experiencing tangible reinforcers. It weakens if not reinforced. In contrast, foundational religious behavior is unaffected by consequences. Moreover, it does not arise out of the efforts of the person who seeks it. This avolitional quality of genuine or graceful religious experience is captured in the words of Merton, 1948. And that is by T. Merton, The Seven Story Mountain, 1948. And no one can believe these things merely by wanting to of his own volition. Unless he receive grace an actual light and implosion of the mind and will from God, he cannot even make an act of living faith. In contrast, Merton highlights meretricious quality, the meretricious quality of effortful religious acts. And therefore, even when we are acting with the best of intentions and imagine we are doing great good, we may be actually doing tremendous material harm and contradicting all our good intentions. The only answer to the problem is grace. Grace, docility to grace. So, therefore, the distinction between foundational and acquired religious behaviors involves the difference between that which is graceful and effortless and that which is effortful, purposeful, and functional. Distinguishing between these two forms of religious behavior is so fundamental to religious scholarship that to ignore it in the service of explaining religion is to explain something other than religion, or so Strand says in this article. Religious, I'll move on to religious dark periods. The distinction between these two classes of religious behavior explains why religious leaders and mystics 
report religious dark periods. Dark periods involve great striving and obedience without the presence of God's grace. According to the present perspective, this experience involves continued effortful behavior without the foundational induced behavior. It is a basic tenet of religious scholarship that these dark periods are common and how they are man managed distinguishes great religious personages from the rest. There is evidence for those who pers persevere with a calling in the absence of the felt grace of God. Although it is not graceful, it is noble and is a reflection of grace. He refers to Morton, Merton, 1948. Unless acquired religious expressions, grace cannot be grasped through effort. Unlike acquired religious expressions, grace cannot be grasped through effort. Instead, one must be grasped by it. The fact that it the absence of grace is considered a dark period suggests that the phenomenology associated with with graceful and effortful religious behavior is different. Induced religious behavior is apparently more rewarding than acquired religious behavior because the great religious mystics are distinguished by the fact of their continual religious striving despite full awareness that such effort is not functional in terms of securing the rewards they desire. The next section is debating a relational definition of religious behavior. According to the present formulation, it is responding to the world from the perspective of self as infinite that defines religious behavior. This places religious behavior within a category of response classes termed relational, generalized, higher order, and overarching. As such, it is not possible to generate a definitive list of religious behaviors or describe their appearance. That is, because the members of relational response classes are defined functionally without reference to topographical features. This makes it difficult to obtain inner observer agreement. For example, example, sitting quietly, walking, and eating a meal may or may not be religious acts. Therefore, the identification of whether some behavior is religious is highly dependent on verbal self-reports and the analysis of extended time samples. He goes on later on in the article, In addition, a relational definition of religious behavior is appealing with respect to some important aspects of that behavior. Conceiving of religious behavior as a relational response class accounts for how religion can be both stable and unstable at the level of cultures. Religious behavior in the abstract is stable in the sense that it has apparently existed in all human cultures, both past and present. Nevertheless, the form of religious practices and symbols is undoubtedly unstable across time and cultures. Religious behavior, then, is identifiable as a pattern extended across time and space, despite the absence of a common topography. That's an important point, I think. A relational definition also makes sense of the concept of spiritual growth. In many religious traditions, spiritual growth involves an attempt to expand the response class, that being religious behavior, to include the ever more mundane, simple, and repetitious aspect of life. The goal has been perhaps most celebrated in Eastern religious traditions that identify spirituality with being in the moment. However, the emphasis on experiencing everyday acts and routines as religious is also evident 
in Western religious traditions. Mother Teresa, for instance, implored her sisters to recognize their simplest activities as most holy. This is an attempt to expand the response class to include topographically diverse phenomena and supports the idea that religious behavior transcends topography. Automatic Reinforcement Religion and Compulsive Behavior An alternative formulation for why behavior religious or otherwise might persist in the absence of observable reinforcers and even in the face of putative punishers relies on the concept of automatic reinforcement. Reinforcement is automatic to the extent that the behavioral act itself is reinforcing. Religious behavior, for example, might maintain itself to the extent that it is inherently calming, or perhaps because religious narratives reduce unpredictability. Given the apparent parsimony of this account, why consider the more complex schedule-induced account? Strand asks. One reason for such consideration involves recent research illustrating a strong link between schedule-induced behavior and compulsive behavior. Specifically, laboratory research with rats has illustrated stable individual differences with respect to susceptibility to schedule-induced behavior. Such susceptibility is highly predictive of compulsive and addictive behaviors. That is, rats that engage in schedule-induced behavior are much more likely to respond to cocaine administration with increased psychomotor sensitization than are rats that do not engage in schedule-induced behavior. Okay. Note that psychomotor sensitization is recognized as the animal equivalent of compulsive and addictive behaviors in humans. Given that religiosity is strongly linked to compulsive behavior, these laboratory findings suggest that schedule-induced behavior, or susceptibility to it, is perhaps the behavioral primitive for various complex behavior patterns that might include religious behavior. So I'm going to take just a section from his conclusion to summarize some of the basic ideas. But Strand says, by alluding to schedule-induced behavior, the present formulation is admittedly appealing to a class of behaviors that is not well understood. As such, it can be criticized as using one poorly understood concept to explain another. In addition, schedule-induced behavior has been largely ignored, apparently the product of contrived laboratory preparations with little or no real-world significance. In response to these criticisms, I argue that even though schedule-induced behavior is enigmatic with respect to its origins, it is nevertheless a well-documented phenomenon that can be examined in highly controlled settings. As such, it has the potential through continued empirical scrutiny to improve prediction and control. Well, I enjoyed reading about that, and although it was a little bit technical there, I thought it, that is an interesting analysis of religion as a schedule-induced behavior. And I've talked to some other people about this article and some, uh, shall we say, correlations with uh, the behavior seen in other religions, some indicators that uh, what uh, Paul Strand wrote is a good description. And it makes me think of 
one of my favorite guys. The king of Beaver Island, which is uh, James Jesse Strang, S-T-R-A-N-G, uh, who is written about in actually many books, but I found about him also in this one, Voyages into Michigan's Past by Larry B. Massey, M-A-S-S-I-E, which I picked the book up at a book sale, and it has a signature by the author in it. Not to me, but specifically, but whoever picked this book up, Voyages into Michigan's Past, uh, Avery Color Studios, 1988. The king of Beaver Island strode calmly toward the wharf at St. James Harbor. It was mid. It was a mid-June evening in 1856, and the monarch was preoccupied with thought. Ruling the spiritual and civil lives of some 2,600 Mormon subjects who dwelt within a 53-square-mile kingdom located 30 miles offshore from Chevrolet required concentration. Or perhaps King Strang mulled over some domestic squabble instigated by one of his four pregnant wives. Suddenly, as Strang stepped upon the dock, Two disgruntled fellows, followers appeared behind him. Alexander Wentworth coolly cocked a long-barreled horse pistol and shot his king in the side of the head. Strang pitched forward, and Wentworth and Thomas Bedford fired two more rounds into his face and back. As the assassins ran by, Strang grabbed Bedford's leg, and Bedford then beat him unconscious with a with his pistol butt. Wentworth and Bedford jumped to a waiting launch and the crew who had calmly watched the shooting rowed them to the U.S. Navy steamer Michigan anchored in the harbor. A group of Mormons carried their wounded leader to a nearby house. Born March 21, 1813, James Jesse Strang had grown up in western New York State. His appearance gave little indication of royalty. He was short, red-haired, and had an abnormally large head, but his piercing eyes and deep, vibrant voice indicated an inner strength. He early developed grandiose expectations. When 19, he chided himself in diary entries for his lack of success. He expected to rival Caesar or Napoleon. A few months later, he spent a day trying to contrive some plan to marry the future Queen Victoria, at that time 12 years of age. She was. Strang became a lawyer at the age of 23 and perfected a hypnotic or oratical ability, but he found the legal profession too tame and immigrated west to Wisconsin Territory in 1843. There, a Mormon apostle, whose shrill pulpit exoriations rattled window panes, converted Strang. He journeyed to Navo, Navo, Illinois, than the Mormon capital to be personally baptized by church founder Joseph Smith. Soon ordained as an elder, Strang was sent on a mission to Wisconsin to scout out a new home for the beleaguered saints. When Joseph and Hiram Smith were murdered by a mob 
the Mormon church was thrown into chaos. As Brigham Young scrambled for control, a number of rival successors emerged. Strang threw his hat into the ring when he produced an apocryphal letter from Joseph Smith endorsing him as the true heir. The church excommunicated Strang, but he established a rival Zion at Vorey in southeastern Wisconsin. The Vorey community gained divine sanction when Strang miraculously discovered a set of ancient tablets under conditions remarkably similar to Joseph Smith's experience in Palmyra, New York in 1827. Through the aid of magic peep stones, Strang translated the hieroglyphics into the Book of the Law of the Lord, a supplement to the Book of Mormon. Brigham Young sought refuge from Gentile persecution by leading his followers to Utah in 1846. Strang, faced with similar problems, located an ideal sanctuary nearer to civilization, Beaver Island. Strang and four companions found a scouting foray to the island in 1847 and found much to their liking found it much to their liking. The island was sparsely inhabited by Irish fishermen and Indian traders who made a good living by swapping for fish a special, special blend of watered-down whiskey flavored with chewing tobacco and red pepper. Hmm. Strang planted a small colony of people on the island. By the summer of 1849, a mass exodus of Strangite Mormons had arrived in the land of milk and honey. So you might want to stop this and maybe look up uh, there, Lake Michigan, and find uh, Beaver Island. It's not really a small uh, island, but it is uh, I was ideally located uh, for this mission at the time, it seems. Okay, I'll go on. Industrious Mormons carved farmsteads out of the interior wilderness, built roads, and began acquiring control of the entire island as well as the choicest fishing grounds. The renamed har they renamed the harbor and settlement St. James, appropriately, and bestowed biblical names on local geographic features. Needless to say, friction developed between the saints and the feisty Irish fishermen they had supplanted. Some property was purchased legitimately, but Strang also appointed a sheriff who issued certificates of sale for land belonging to the government or absent owners. When President Millard Fillmore failed to grant his petition for title to all the uninhibited islands in Lake Michigan, Strang announced that God had given the property to him and his people. Strang revealed this startling fact at his coronation on July 8, 1850. During an imposing pageant out of medieval history, the crimson-robed Strang walked solemnly onto a hewn log tabernacle where a former actor-turned-saint placed a crown on his auburn head. Henceforth, July 8th, King's Day, replaced July 4th as Beaver Island's National Day of Celebration. As the Mormon population of the island multiplied, the displaced Irish grew more hostile. Raiders from their new headquarters on Mackinac Island waylaid Mormon fishermen, broke into households, and molested women. The Mormons struck back, and both sides committed atrocities. Eastern newspapers publicized the bitter feuding and usually depicted the Mormons as a band of pirates. During a visit to Detroit, President Fillmore learned of the Beaver Island Kingdom and ordered Strang arrested. 
Strang surrendered himself, conducted his own defense at the trial in Detroit, and won an acquittal. In 1853, he rigged the local election to win a seat in the Michigan legislature. I did a special on Strang in uh, the uh, uh, podcast we had on, on pirates. You might want to check that one out. King Strang's rule was that of a benevolent despot guided by divine wisdom. Periodic visions enacted his personal prejudices into law. He reversed an earlier stand against polygamy when he fell in love with a teenage schoolmarm. Yet his legal code prescribed death for adultery. Strang established schools, set up royal printing presses, published a newspaper, and wrote a variety of pamphlets. He prohibited alcohol, coffee, tea, tobacco, and gambling. The king decreed the national uh, costume for women to be the plantoon and short skirt ensemble popularized by Amelia Bloomer. Violators of Strang's codes were subject to public flogging. Thomas Bedford had been whipped by order of the king, reputedly for upholding his wife's refusal to don Bloomer's. Alexander Wentworth harbored a similar grievance. Aided by Gentile enemies, the pair took their revenge by shooting Strang. The Michigan, the boat Michigan, conveyed the assassins to Mackinac Island for a hero's welcome. They were never brought to trial. Suspecting another attack, the saints moved their wounded king to Voree. The invasion came on July 5, 1856. A mob of drunken rowdies stormed the kingdom. They burned the tabernacle, sacked the printing office, and roamed the island, hurting Mormon families at gunpoint to waiting transports. With a, within a few days, some 2,600 men, women, and children were ruthlessly evicted from their homes and cast ashore at various Great Lakes ports. Byron M. Cutchin, a turn-of-the-century Michigan historian, termed July 5, 1856, the most disgraceful day in Michigan history. King Strang died of his wounds on July 9, 1856. Though able to converse until the end, he refused to name a successor. That spelled doom for the Strangite Mormon Church. Leaderless and scattered, the flock soon dispersed. But a few diehard remained loyal, and as late as 1936, Michigan claimed 15 practicing Strangite Mormons. I find that fascinating, that it continued even without his leadership until 1936. And what if he had named a successor? Would there be enough schedule-induced reinforcement to continue the Strangite belief system years later? So I'll go on. Today, Beaver Island is the most remote inhabited island in the Great Lakes. A permanent population of 350 people, predominantly of Irish descent, make a living by fishing, logging, and catering to the tourist trade. This was in 1988 when this book was written. I think it has quite a tourist uh, attraction to it. The original Mormon print shop museum, a body of fascinating literature and place names like the King's Highway, Genesareth, and Mount Pisgah, P-I-S-G-A-H, are all that remains of King Strang's utopian dream. Quote, the only kingdom to ever exists in the United States, unquote. So there we have not just a study of religion, uh, as uh, Tobin Book said in when we also covered King Strang, when we talked about Michigan's true crime, 
Tovin Buch, uh, true crime author, mentioned how Strang might be a good study in this cult of personality uh, that is tied to religion and other areas. But that also, uh, and other things, may be that schedule-induced behavior that we see in the case of King Strang and perhaps some others. Also, the, uh, the, the distinction between the graceful and the effortful religious experience may be, uh, may be displayed in this particular case. But there, there was a lot of devotion, apparently, among the people. And but uh, they were required to also make a lot of effort. When Strang was not there anymore, it almost uh, it lost a lot of its a lot of its power because of his oratorical skills and um, probably some other factors as well. I don't think this is the what we've talked about here is not the final word on religion. There's a lot more to be said about it, and I know it's very important and meaningful. To a lot of us, and I, I think, I think a serious examination of it, of something, of this important to human history, is not something to be ignored by behavior analysis. It should be done in a respectful way, but it is some very fascinating stuff, and people like uh, James Strang uh, add to that fascination. Well, all right, this has been the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Believe what you want to believe. Uh, Live your life as best you can. Stay safe out there. And we'll be speaking with you again. Criminal Behavior Hour. This has been... Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.